Let's pray together. Father, what a privilege it is to sing of your mercy and grace, your love and your kindness, your long-suffering toward us, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ who died the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to you. What a privilege it is to consider this, and what a privilege it is to study your word, to see these truths. We pray that we would humble ourselves before you, that we would worship you, that we would be impacted by the truth of your word, that you would mold us, And I pray, Father, for anyone in this room that's never trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, that in this hour of study, your spirit and your word would bring forth the necessary conviction of sin and a realization that because of your astounding mercy and grace, you've done what's necessary to bring them into a a true, enduring, eternal relationship with yourself that is one of welcome. Do your work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. People compete with one another in so many areas, in wealth, intelligence, philosophy. There's competition politically, among parties and individuals. There's competition, we understand, in athletics. Then there's just the common everyday, my car is better than your car, my kids are better than your kids, and my house is better than your house, my job is better than your house, unless you're the opposite. Your car is better than my car, your kids are better than my kids, your house is better than my house, your job is better than my job. Maybe that's not true about you. Maybe that's not how you go through life. Maybe you realize you can't keep up. You've thrown in the towel because you can't compete in these areas. Or maybe, and preferably, maybe you've come to the place in life where God has removed these strivings from you because you have found true peace and true joy through what you know he has done, through what you know he is doing, and through what you know he will do, maybe God has removed those strivings from you to where you're no longer competing with others because you recognize the relationship that you now have with the Lord. Maybe you're no longer competing with others because you see who you are in God's eyes. Throughout the book of Romans, there are various ways that the believer's relationship with God is depicted. In the first chapter, Paul has no problem at all identifying himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. A servant of Jesus Christ. He also, without hesitation, speaks of the recipients of the letter as those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Additionally, Paul calls these believers loved. Loved by God. Do you know that you're loved by God? 
the believers in Rome, they were instructed, uh, they were informed that they were those that were loved by God. Uh, Paul portrays numerous changes of our status throughout the book and his argument. For instance, the believer's records are changed. We call that justification from sinner to saint. We're in Romans chapter 3. Take a look, please, at verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is, we are all, what? Sinners. If we looked further in the book of Romans, which we will do, but not on this particular issue, we would recognize that the wages, the payment for sin, is death. Romans 6, 23. We're sinners by birth and sinners by choice. This is a truth about us. But throughout Paul's argument in the book of Romans, he wants to let us know that those who have repented of their sins and turned to Jesus Christ for their salvation, they've been changed from sinner to saint. God has changed the records. He's removed the the record of our sin debt and placed it upon the Lord Jesus Christ and taken the righteous record of Christ and placed it upon our account, that's called justification. He says it in the very next verse in Romans 3. Look at verses 24 and following. You are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth or forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Sinner to saint, when we trust Christ alone for our eternal salvation, God changes our record from sinner to saint. This is a change in status. Justification. Secondly, in his argument, he also makes very clear this status change from slaves to sin to slaves to God. Look at chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 and verse 22. He says, but now that you have been set free from sin, set free, it's a release from slavery. He says that earlier in the text. And you have become slaves of God. The fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. The the status change is from slaves, excuse me, from slaves to sin to slaves to God. As he further unveils some relational changes that that take place in the lives of believers, he lets us know that the believer's relationship with God has changed from that of being enemies of God to being sons of God. The enemies of God uh, concept you can see very clearly in chapter 5 and verse 10. It says, for if while we were enemies, while we were enemies in past tense, before our justification we were enemies, then he talks about being reconciled in that text. But take a look at chapter 8 for a moment. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 12, he says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, nor to sin, to live according to the flesh, 
For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are, what does it say? Sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So our status has changed. Sinners, enemies. To what? Slaves of God, sons of God, children of God. These changes remove the fear of condemnation. Chapter 8 and verse 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So God has removed the fear of condemnation because of the status changes that he has brought forth. The removal of our sin debt, the addition of Jesus' righteousness, I am a justified one, the removal of my allegiance from slave to sin to a slave to God, and a change in relationship, a a slave, or excuse me, uh, an enemy of God to a Son of God. He's made these astounding changes, and it removes all fear of condemnation. And it brings us to the point that it motivates us, based upon the mercies of God, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. We see that in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Based upon all the good things that God has done, all the mercies he's demonstrated, all the graces he has bestowed upon you, because of that, lay your life down. Lay your life down. And for those that have experienced the justifying work of God, for those who have gone from slaves to sin to slaves to God, from enemies of God to sons of God, presenting our bodies to him is what we want. We don't always do it, but it is what we want. We are motivated to lay our lives down as a pleasing sacrifice to him. So now turn to chapter 14, please. Romans chapter 14, which is our text for this morning. Over the coming weeks, we're going to try to understand this section from chapter 14, verse 1, through chapter 15 and verse 7, understanding what Paul, by the inspiration of the Spirit of God, is trying to convey to us about how we deal with one another and how we prepare for the day that we stand before our judge But in order to do that rightly, this morning, we are introducing this concept the way that Paul kind of introduces us to the concept by trying to understand how God views us. If if we didn't know what the Bible had to say about God's mercy and grace, and we were preparing for a judgment day, we would do so with great fear and trepidation. But when we... We view what God has said to us in his word about what he has already accomplished. Viewing the judgment, while there is a reverent awe of that moment, I do not fear condemnation. I will not stand guilty before Jesus, for my judge is my savior. The one to whom I will give an account is the one whom the book of Hebrews chapter 4 and verse uh, 
15 says, was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. And because of that, he sympathizes with us. He feels with us. He has compassion upon us in our weaknesses, our failings, our sinfulness. He didn't sin in those temptations, but he knows what temptation is like, and he has compassion upon us. And so the one to whom we will give an account is the same one that laid his life down. To see this passage properly, we have to see how God views us. And the first way that we understand him to convey this to us is that we belong to God. We belong to him. Take a look at the whole text. We're going to read verses 1 through 9 to introduce this passage. But verses 6 through 9 is our, of our interest right this moment. As for the one who was weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day, As better than another, while another esteems all days alike, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord, and the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then... Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. By the time that we arrive at Romans chapter 14, we happily understand that we belong to God. This is not a distressing reality. This is a joyous reality that we belong to God. This belonging to God has happened as a direct result of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, as it tells us in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were, what? Bought with a, a price. What was the price? It was the precious blood of Jesus as a lamb without blemish and without spot. It's not with silver and gold that we've been redeemed from our vain manner of life, that we received from our our traditions, our forefathers. We've been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The price that was paid was the price of the Lord Jesus Christ's life. So glorify God in your body. Too often this passage is viewed very negatively, and it is such a glorious, positive truth. Jesus laid his life down to buy me. I belong to God. Do you have anything that belongs to you? Do you mistreat those things? Or do you treat them with some form of ownership? You care for it. You want to Treat it well. You want to make sure it lasts. You want to make sure it endures. You care for it. God owns us. 
We also understand that we will stand accountable to this God who has secured our eternal salvation through the propitiatory work of Jesus Christ. Verses 10 through 12 uh, let us know that. I'll just read verse 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. We'll come to that in coming weeks. When we understand these truths introspectively, inwardly, we consider them, we rejoice that God has changed us in our relationship with him, in our status with him. When we begin to apply these truths to the church of Jesus Christ, we should start to seek one another's good. Because what is true of me, being one of God's children and welcomed in, we'll see that shortly, is true of my brother and sister in Christ as well. This is one of the emphases of this text. Look at chapter 14 and verse 1. As for the one who was weak in faith, what does it say? Welcome him. Verse 19. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual, mutual upbuilding. Verse, uh, chapter 15 and verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us pl- please his neighbor for his good to build him up, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Look down at verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. We belong to God. All of the redeemed belong to God. You belong to God, but so also does your brother or sister in Christ belong to God. And therefore, we have responsibilities toward one another to give the kind of loving embrace, figuratively, that God gives to us toward one another. A welcoming. We'll talk more about that now. We are welcomed by God. We are welcomed by God. Go to back, back to chapter 14 and verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Why? What's the reason? Say it with me, please. For God has welcomed him. God has welcomed him. We already saw chapter 15 and verse 7. The motivation for us welcoming one another is that Christ has welcomed us. God has welcomed us for the glory of his great name. The word welcomed is used numerous times in the New Testament. I'll just share a couple of them for your edification. In Acts chapter 28, in verse 2, the context is shipwreck. The whole ship has gone to pieces, and they're floating in the water, and they're swimming to the shore and riding the planks in like they're surfing or clinging for dear life to those things. They get to the shore, and this is what they encounter in verse 2. The native people showed us an unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. They were taking care of them. Hey, you seem like you might be having a problem today. Let's, let me help you. This is one of the ways it's used. In the book of Philemon, in verse 17, it says this, So if you consider me 
Philemon, if you consider me, Paul, your partner, receive him, Onesiphorus, or Onesimus, sorry, receive Onesimus as you would receive me. In other words, welcome him in. Take him back. Don't, don't mistreat him when he comes back. Receive him like you'd receive me. While Romans 14 certainly positively identifies God's people as a redeemed people, as a purchased people, those who are God's servants, which we will discuss in a few moments, in this expression of being welcomed or received, we must see the embrace or intimacy that comes from God. John Stott, uh, from years earlier, wrote this. Proslumbano, that's the Greek term for welcomed. Pros, meaning to. Lumbano, to take or receive. Proslumbano. Proslumbano means to accept people in the sense of uh, acquiescing in their existence, uh, even in their right to belong, more even than to receive or accept into one's society, into one's home or circle of acquaintances. It means to welcome into one's fellowship and into one's heart. So there's more to this than just, all right, they're allowed to exist in my presence. Oh, yes, you also can be a part of us over there. James talks about letting people sit in the back or calling them down the front, depending on their status. It's not that kind of welcome. It's the opposite kind of welcome where we're embracing one another. There's an intimacy involved. And I think it's very well illustrated in a parable of the Lord Jesus. Will you join me in looking at Luke 15 for a moment? Luke 15. If you're following along a note of our church Bibles, you'll find it on 874. 874. Luke chapter 15, we're going to cut right into the middle of this parable the Lord Jesus told about the prodigal son. You'll remember he basically said, Dad, not really a big fan of yours, I wish you were dead, give me your stuff. Not kidding, that's what he said to his dad. His dad became for him a source of finance rather than his father. For some reason, because God wanted to illustrate something, this father distributes to his son his portion of the inheritance. And he goes off and spends his money on riotous living, and from one version of Scripture. Uh, But then uh, the money dried up, as it tends to do. And he was broke, And his friends left him, because they weren't real friends, (laughs) and he was eating pig slop. So he had an idea. Uh, I remember how my dad treated the servants, and it was better than this. I'm going to go back, I'm going to tell him I did the wrong thing, and I'm going to ask him if he'll just accept me in as one of his servants. That's where we pick it up. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and 
go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. This is his plan. I'm not worthy to be called a son. I'll be a hired servant. Your dad, take me in like this. Well, his father had a different response than that. Look at verse 20. And he arose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and he kissed him. It's a little different than the son's expectation, I'd say. And the father has a different plan than the son's plan. The son makes his presentation, I sin before God, and I sin before you. Take me in as a servant. Verse 22. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my, what does it say? Son. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The son had a plan. I'll come as a servant, not a son. The father said, I have a better plan. You come as my son because you're my son and not a servant. And the servants observed all of this. And the other son observed this. The other son's like, What's going on over there? And the servants interpret this setting this way. Listen to how the servants interpret what they just saw take place between the father and the son. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come. Your father has killed the fatted calf because he has... What does that say? Received him back safe and sound. The word there is a little bit different than the word in Romans 14. Romans 14 has the word pros, pros, to, to, proslambano. This is apolambano, from lambano, receive from. Receive to, receive in, receive from. Tell me how much difference there is. Not much. I'm receiving you into my arms. I'm receiving you into my house. I'm receiving you into my family. I'm receiving you into my kingdom. Or I'm receiving you from your waywardness. I'm receiving you from your sin. I'm receiving you from your uh, distortion. I'm receiving you from your hurt, from your sorrows, from your depression, from your sickness, from your eternal destiny separate from me. I receive you from where you are to where I am. This concept of welcoming is a concept of bringing someone into an intimate relationship. That's clear, I think, in the prodigal son story, isn't it? God welcomed, welcomes the sinner into his kingdom, into his family, though they're unworthy, Though they don't even deserve to be a hired servant, he receives the sinner as a son. This is what God has done 
for all those who have come into a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. God welcomes us. And that's what's being said here in Romans 14. We have to see this. It is a reiterated concept. Chapter 14 and verse 1, welcome the weak. That's a directive. Verse 3, because God has welcomed you. Chapter 15 and verse 7, which brackets the text, right? Brings us everything in between is about this concept. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So the fact that God welcomes us is a very important concept in Romans chapter 14. Let's head back there, please. Not only do we belong to God, not only are we welcomed by God, but now the different tenor, different thought, we are God's servants. We are God's servants. You see that in verses 4 through 9. He makes emphasis upon this. In verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the what? Servant of another. It is before his own master that he stands or falls. Verse 8, please. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Now the word Lord is the Greek term kurios, right? And that means master. It's the equivalent of the Hebrew expression Adonai, master. God is master. Well, if God is master, then I am servant. Verse 9, for to this end Christ died and lived again that he might be kurios, Lord, both of the dead and of the living. He is Lord of all. God has declared us to be servants. We belong to him. He is Lord both of dead, the dead and the living. This concept of being sealed by the Spirit. You familiar with that concept? It's recorded for us in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 22. It brings up this concept of the sealing of the Holy Spirit. It beautifully describes the new relationship that has resulted at the moment of our salvation. We have God's mark of ownership on us. Have you ever had some item that you wrote your name on? Because you didn't want someone else to take it. Some people do that on all their tools. I want to make sure that everyone knows this tool is mine. There's a, there's a church work day. I don't want someone else to take my rake home, so I have my three hash marks on it. That's, that's mine. Don't you take it. If I find a tool that has no marking, I'm going to put my three hash marks on it. That's mine. Don't take it. <laughs> uh, whatever it is, right? We're, we're marking it. This is mine. It's ownership. Slave, master, uh, master, servant relationship. Paul elsewhere describes that all of our activities in life are reflective of our relationship as God's servants. I want you to think about this. This, this is like Monday morning. Monday morning, you're going to go and do whatever it is that you do on Monday morning. Some of you will be in your home. Some of you will be on the road to work. But you're going to go do something. Some of you are married. Some of you are not. Some of you have kids. Some of you do not. Some of you are children that have parents that you're responsible to. Uh, some of your parents aren't here anymore. Whatever uh, minutia of your life, this concept of God being our Lord, Christ being our Lord, and us being his servants, it, it hits us directly where we live. 
Listen to what the Bible says in Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and following. Whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily as for who? The Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are, this is not, this is not a command here. This is a statement of fact. You are serving the Lord Christ. When you're painting the window frame, you are serving the Lord Christ. When you're washing your car, you are serving the Lord Christ. When you're washing the dishes, you are serving the Lord Christ. When you're cleaning your floor, you are serving the Lord Christ. Doing the laundry, folding the laundry, cleaning up after the dog again, cleaning up after your children again, cleaning up after your parents again, whatever your problem is, you are serving the Lord Christ. Christ, you serve in a secular environment, you're serving as a state employee, you are serving the Lord Christ. You work at church, you are serving the Lord Christ. Everything in life. How does this come up? Because you're God's servant. And he makes this point. Someday we're going to stand before God as his servants. Did you serve me well? What did you do with your time? We don't stand before the Lord in fear, but there is a, a reckoning, a, an assessment, an accounting. Verses 10 through 12 make that clear, and again, we're going to come to that in the coming weeks. In addition to belonging to God and being welcomed by God and being God's servants, we should also note that we are upheld by God. This is a glorious truth. I was studying this week, and... Um, well, because of my particular physical condition, I'm studying in like on a, a lazy boy recliner type thing in my house, and like I've got my books like spread all over the place, and I have a computer that I'm not used to using, and I'm typing, and like stuff's falling, and my dog jumps on me, and my kids jump on me, and everything else is going on, and I, I study, and, and I'm as I'm looking at these concepts, like I, every, I have to take more frequent breaks because I'm weak or something, but. Um, I couldn't help numerous times as I was studying through this passage more, smiling. Smiling. It's just like I can't even believe I get the privilege of talking to you guys about this today. God has purchased us. We belong to him. God has welcomed us. He's embracing us. He's given me the privilege of being his servant. Everything in my life matters. From the time I wake up to the time I go to bed, it all matters. So many people are living through this life and they don't have any purpose and they're frustrated. Every second of my life has purpose. That doesn't mean I always use it, right? Sometimes I think about some time I've wasted. I'm like, that mattered. I, I shouldn't have wasted that time. And I get to this concept here. And in the context of we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that's the context. It's coming in the coming verses. He lets us know that God welcomes us, and he lets us know that we are upheld by him. Look again at verse 4. Who are you? Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. It's before his own master. Oh, who's my master? Well, the Lord, Kurios, Jesus Christ is my master. God is my master. It lets us know that we'll be before, before our master. 
in verse 4, that he has the idea of being judged, standing before him. It says he will be upheld. He will be upheld. Who is causing the believer to be upheld? Well, he makes the answer very obvious. The Lord is able to make him stand. The Bible makes this clear in numerous places, and we're, we're, we're getting right toward the end of our discussion for this morning. Do not turn off your mind. Listen to this passage in, in John 10. If you're familiar with it, Jesus said, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Not my hand, not the Father's hand. Jesus says, I will hold you. The Father will hold you. God will hold you. No matter what's going on. No matter what you face. No matter what you've done no matter where you've been, no matter who you are. If you have come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, God will hold you firmly. It is the Lord who is able to make us stand. He has unlimited power, and he's unthwarted in his purposes. Listen to what the Bible says in John chapter 6. And the Lord Jesus is speaking. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that he, the Father, has given me. But raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will, not I might, I will raise him up on the last day. And if that's not convincing enough for you, which I suppose it would be if you're here to hear what God has to say from his word, but Jude 24 makes this stunning statement. As he concludes, he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to present. Now, just pause for one second. I'm going to read the verse again in just a second, but I want you to understand this word present. It's the same word as back in Romans 14, where he says that he will cause you to stand. He's able to make you stand. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to cause you to stand blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Who, who, who's the one that causes us to stand? God does. You see, this is what, what he's like. Now, we're talking about how we're seen in God's eyes. We're seen as belonging to him, welcomed by him. His servants, we are God's servants, and we are upheld by God. Now, we could easily have said this in reverse. We could have spoken of God's relationship toward us. We could have said God has purchased us. God is our welcoming Father. God is our 
Lord. God is our sustainer. We could have said it that way. But the text here is calling for us to see how we relate to one another because of how we are related to God. The assurance that comes from God being our owner, our master, the one who has welcomed us and who has assured us of our eternal acceptance should change the way that we navigate through life. It should change the way we view fellow believers. They share this same status with us. It doesn't matter matter whether they're black or white, intellectual or common, wealthy or scraping by. It also doesn't matter if we have differences of opinion, even about truth, so long as that truth does not interfere with a clear understanding of who God is and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 1, Romans 14, 1. As for the one who is weak in the faith, the faith is there. It's not in your English, but it is in the Greek. The one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And he goes on and makes this argumentation about not wasting time worrying about certain affairs that do not detract from, pull away from, add to, circumvent, twist, and manipulate the gospel. Now, in other places, he is adamant that if someone is messing with the gospel, they are anathema. He is obviously not talking about opinions here that impact a clear understanding of the gospel. He's talking about having opinions that are different. Guess what? I know this is a stupid cliche. Opinions are like noses. Everybody has one. We've got all kinds of opinions. Should that really, should that really get in the way of true fellowship with true believers? No, it shouldn't. If the opinions distort or distract from the gospel, this is not the same conversation. Different conversation altogether. We're talking about minutia, things that are gray areas where the Bible gives room for differences of opinion. Just saying, you know what? That's the servant of God. Let them deal with the Lord about that. Don't despise them if they don't eat. That's a reference to the strong looking down on the weak. And the opposite side, if you're the weak one and you only eat vegetables, don't look on the people that are willing to eat meat and judge them. You're not their master. They will stand before their master. And guess what? They will stand. They will not fall because he is able to make them stand. This is good news. This is the gospel in application, because we welcome one another based upon the welcome that we have received. We don't welcome one another because we're better than someone else. We don't welcome one another because we're worse than someone else. We welcome one another because we've been welcomed by God. Do you know who you are in the eyes of God? It changes everything about life, doesn't it? It takes away some of the strivings 
Yeah, you still have things you like. You still want your team to win. You still want your house to look as nice as it can look and your car to look as nice as it can look and your clothes to look as nice as they can look and you still want to be you know, physically fit as you can be and all these things. It doesn't remove all of those things. There's nothing wrong with wanting your car to look nice or to go to the gym and exercise and not eat as much meat as you want to eat. There's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. But that's not what we're living for. My life is defined by something else. My life is defined by who I am in the eyes of the one I will stand before one day. Has he embraced me? Has he embraced you? I know he's embraced me. I know he has. How do I know? Because I, I saw myself as I really am, a sinner, condemned, unclean. And his spirit showed me by the gospel from the word, Jesus died for the guilty and the sinner and the condemned and the unclean. Turn, turn, turn from your sin and turn, turn, turn to Jesus. You will have life. You will belong to God. You will be welcomed by God. You will be God's servant and you will be upheld by him and live with him forever. This is the good news. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to love you more as we understand you more fully and we understand how you view us by your grace. Minister your grace in our midst. We pray that you would be glorified and your people would respond well to what you have said. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.